Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 2, Episode 10. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we will be playing a recent webinar entitled Creative Financing Structures for Franchisees. The webinar is in a presentation format, and I'll be joined by Richard Fitzgerald and Wade Daniel at Capital Spring, one of the country's best-known franchise and restaurant investment companies. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. So yeah, so welcome. This is indeed, we're calling this a creative financing structures for franchisees. And I want to just introduce uh, two wonderful gentlemen who are just really industry experts and people who I really, really trust and, and have tons of appreciation and respect for. This is uh, Richard Fitzgerald, who's co-founder and managing partner of Capital Spring. And then you have Wade Daniel, who's a uh, managing director at Capital Spring. These guys are experts in the financing of all things restaurant, franchise, restaurant brands. And so they're very attuned to the entire capital structure of how to think through financing the life cycle of a franchisee's business in all these different scenarios. The reason why I'm excited to have them here today with you is they do not function just as a traditional lender. They have a much broader kind of scope. Whereas, you know, I used to, I tell people, people say, do you sell real estate? And I say, you know, that's not a primary service. We're an, we're an advisory firm, but if you want to sell real, real estate, we know how to do it. These guys can loan you money, but their broader perspective is to figure out how to best capitalize your business for your particular situation, whether it's debt, whether it's equity, whether it's a, some sort of mix of, of in combination of the different scenarios. They've done, uh, I think, somewhere around $2 billion of transactions representing over 5,500 restaurants over the past probably 15 years, mm-hmm. which is somewhere in timeline to my career as well. And so I'm just really honored to have to have them here. And so we'll just kind of jump right into it. And I know you're going to appreciate their advice and perspective. So there's really seven things that we're going to chat about over probably the next 40 minutes or so. And then, and then please feel free to ask questions as, as we go through. The first is going to be circumstances when operators need capital. And then we'll talk about the different methods of financing the franchise business. It's not just put up some equity and then borrow some money from a national restaurant lender. There are other ways. The third would be what to do when access to normal capital channels is limited. And so for those of you who are in some of the struggling brands, whether it's fast casual or casual dining or QSR that's not doing well in this market or independence, please listen up for this. The fourth is going to be how investors approach making investments in franchises. We'll do some financing outlook for restaurant segments by uh, casual dining, fast casual, and QSR opportunities and risks on the horizon. And then I think this piece of it is largely underspoken, but that's really important. So hang in there for the end. If you have any interest in attracting a professional investor in your business, there are certain things that you should do. And I can tell them to you from my perspective, having done it, but it'd probably be interesting for Richard and and Wade to kind of tell you what, what attracts them to a potential restaurant investment. Okay. So that'll be a really valuable piece too. So with that being said, guys, the floor is yours, and uh, and we're excited to hear what you have to say. Fire away. Rick, really appreciate you having us today. It, it has been quite a 
a journey over these 15 years. And I think the last six months has kind of capped off the excitement for the restaurant industry. It's really impressive what you've built with Unbridled. And uh, we love working with you and talking through deals with you and helping us on transactions on both sides. So certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to join you today. As Rick said, we've been doing this for about 15 years and decided to commit kind of our our lives to financing restaurants and really set out to do it a little bit differently than, than we had seen, at least in our in our past experience. You know, we're not a, a traditional bank that has a bureaucratic organization sometimes and cheap capital we can lend and we can own, but we're also uh, more of a solutions provider. And I think our goal typically is to figure out you know, what the capital is being used for, what are the goals of the transaction, what are the sensitivities, um, really all the components that would figure into kind of designing a capital structure or a, a stack of different types of securities to best fit the needs of the borrower or the counterpart. Stepping back, you know, when you think about it, what do people need capital for? I think the list here is, is fairly obvious. You know, one of the, the most frequent ones that we see are people who are looking to either sell their business or buy a business maybe more so on the, the selling the business, you want to make sure that the buyer has the financing. But when you are the buyer, obviously, it's important to have the financing, you know, hopefully a, a good sense of it going into the transaction so it doesn't hold up the ultimate transaction or take turns that you don't expect and introduce risk into getting a deal ultimately done. So, you know, a big one, I think for us is people that come to us for capital in order to buy a business. And sometimes that's an existing operator that's looking to grow their business. That's buying a franchisee in the next town over. Sometimes it's a, a number two or a number three in an organization that wants to buy a business from their boss who wants to retire. Sometimes it's a manager at a brand who's trying to buy stores from corporate through a refranchising transaction. You know, we've seen a broad spectrum of situations and we approach each one kind of with a clean sheet of paper or a, a clean whiteboard and, and try to figure out how best to design a security or design a financing package to meet the needs of that specific transaction. Oftentimes, it's it, it may not be a situation where people want to sell their whole business. You know, I think a lot of people going through a period of like this probably think about it. And some who may have thought they would wanted to sell in the next five years may say, well, I may not want to wait through this roller coaster of the next five years. I want to do it sooner. But there are options to do things in, in between. We've had people approach us and say, look, I'm not quite ready to retire yet. I'd like to take some money off the table. That may be for estate planning reasons or just my own de-risking of you know, my life's work in, in this investment. And so we have people that come to us and say, look, I don't want to sell. I don't want somebody else to come be my new boss or my new partner, but I do want to take some money off the table. So a partial liquidity event is, is one reason why we have people that approach us looking for capital that may be a little bit different than they can go get from their local banker or maybe a little bit different than their brother-in-law or their friends and family, you know, writing a check to buy into their business. Um, and then the like last sense of doing like a, for yeah, a, go ahead. a simple man's uh, view, kind of like a refinancing of your home, mor home mortgage or whatever, right? You know, you can, you can take a little bit of equity out of your business or a little bit of value out of your business and take it and put it in your pocket by having a partner like you. Yeah, it's maybe something that most people on the call don't aren't are not as familiar with, actually. Sure. No, absolutely. And we've had situations where sometimes it starts out where they just want to take a little money off the table and they may realize that they over a few years they may want to take the rest of the money off the table. So it doesn't have to be a, a final decision to do a partial liquidity kind of transaction and that can evolve different ways. Certainly. Whether Richard, I'd say whether a lot of control or lose control, whether they keep a majority ownership or I mean, there's all kinds of different structures there, right? So, so
some people might say, you know, because people come to me all the time and they'll say, Rick, I, you know, I may want to find an investor for my business. And I say, well, the standard approach is that you sell 80% of your business and keep 20% of it or 15% of it. And you have all kinds of upside to grow and, you know, access to capital that you don't have yourself. But that's not necessarily the only way to do it, right? I mean, there's other ways to do it where an operator might actually be able to monetize a minority share of their business, right? Absolutely. And I'll wait, I'll, I'll kick it over to you, but I'll, I'll give one example that may be helpful. We've had a, a situation where a family had inherited a business from a founder and the family was involved, but really didn't want to write a lot more checks into the business to really grow it. They thought it had good prospects, but they came to us and said, look, we'd like to monetize part of the business, but we'd like to keep a chunk of the business, but let you put money in to continue to grow the business. But hopefully we can almost have two bites at the apple. We can monetize some of it to get them cash out now. We can partner with a firm like Capital Spring or others who provide maybe an alternative to them to go and kind of partner with us to go help grow the business. And we can write checks to help them grow the business. And hopefully the stub that they've kept will be worth a lot more maybe than they would if they had just sold it all that same day. So they may think that it's got growth prospects. It's not something that they think there's no uh, upside in, but they want to monetize and then kind of roll into the next deal and monetize again, maybe on several years down. But that's a situation that we see. I bet you see a lot of this too. I know we got to keep going, but I'm just thinking about the generational change between franchisees. I mean, I deal with this all the time. The 75-year-old founder and owner of the business and the second generation that may not have the same growth goals and uh, the same risk tolerance that the founder had when they got into the business, but still wants to keep the business and grow it. Yeah. And that could be a family member that wants to kind of take over and step in and, and maybe the, the owner of the business or the franchisee you know, wants to take some money out, doesn't want to just maybe give it to their children, wants to monetize some of what they've worked hard to build. And oftentimes the son or daughter wants to take it over and needs a capital partner to both give their parents liquidity, but also capitalize them to take it to the next level. And that could be a family member. That could also be an employee. You know, we've seen time and time again, so many um, situations where there is someone in the organization that has kind of been there from the beginning that has really helped build this business and as the owner of the franchisee wants to take maybe some more time off and step away from the business, this person has stepped up. Oftentimes, the franchisee, it would be the ideal situation to have their number two or number three who's really worked hard, maybe not have a lot of equity in the business, to be the next owner of the business. But oftentimes, that number two or number three doesn't have you know, a rich family member or rich friends and family or, or contacts to, to go and actually get a deal done. And so we've had a lot of situations where We've been introduced to the number two or the number three by the owner of the business to say, will you partner with them to buy my business and let them become the next owner because they kind of deserve it. Interesting. No, thanks for sharing. Yeah, keep going. You got good capital. Yeah. Yeah. So this one obviously is a pretty generic, pretty generic category, Rick, but I think a lot goes into it. I would say in general, what we're talking about here is bring us a problem. We'll look to structure around it. So if you want to buy your neighbor, you want to buy your neighboring franchisee, you don't think you have access to capital to do it, and you want to take some money off the table at the time, I think there's combinations of all of those to be done. So I know Richard just mentioned partial liquidity events, selling a business, some capital for growth, but I don't think any one of those are necessarily mutually exclusive from the other. I think where we would approach a structured solution is mixing and matching to accomplish kind of the end goal that a franchisee has. So I don't think I'm in a position to buy my neighboring market, but it's the one time it's going to become for sale. And so this is my once in a generation shot to buy it. I think we'd like an opportunity to structure to understand, particularly with a strong operator who can prove that they can make 
two to 400 basis points of margin improvement by integrating it into their organization and others. And that's something we're willing to take a look at and understand that all acquisitions aren't created equal and that a lot of times an operator can create equity value for themselves by integrating it into their organization. And we're pretty, we do a robust benchmarking of businesses and this is kind of all we do. We've got a data set of, of over 7,500 underlying businesses that we can benchmark against and understand, do we think that's a credible play? And, and if it is, I think it's something we can generally support and get behind and move pretty quickly on. So we can talk about ways to do that on the, on the following slide, but it's a pretty generic kind of heading for, I would say, overall creative solution. And then some of the other things, obviously, that we see people needing capital for, New development. Obviously, with an existing market, some brands, some acquisitions are coming with required development agreements and people having to get ready to those, stay in good graces of the franchisor so you can acquire your next market and be in good standing. So, obviously, we tailor capital around that. And then as well, partner buyouts. I know you and Richard both mentioned this, and this could be a this could be a partner, this could be kind of a, another shareholder, one member's retiring, the other wants to stay on. I think generally what we'd say is just it doesn't necessarily force a sale of a business if one member wants to leave and the other member wants to stay. I think oftentimes we've seen people we've seen people lean into their equity and, and one member says, I want a liquidity event. The other member says, I, I'd like to stick around the longer and, and one member increases his ownership or even pair that with a little bit where both people take some, some capital off the table. So I think that's that component. And then the recapitalizations and, and refinancing, obviously, everyone's debt has a term to it. And especially in, in markets now where, where they're choppy, people are looking generally for refinancing. Um, I think that's a common need. And, and I think I'll kick it back over to Richard to run through a few of the pieces of the capital structure. I think in general, the most common here and what we'd recommend to people is the most common form of capital is traditional kind of bank debt. That's going to be your lowest cost of capital, I think, when when the situation merits it, it's the wisest choice for a company. But I'll let Richard kind of run through the various points here. Sure. And so maybe taking the range kind of from least dilutive, usually least expensive, oftentimes could be the most restrictive in terms of covenants and, and other restrictions on the debt. The, the lender, kind of the traditional deposit-based lenders, you know, I think this is the obviously the largest source of capital, I believe, in our industry. Uh, lots of banks have dedicated groups. If you're looking for a more vanilla financing solution. This is, you know, we, we get calls all the time saying, could you look at this? And, and we'll just say, look, you can go get cheaper capital than, than we could. We're, we're kind of built for more complexity or speed or, or something that, you know, is just outside of what a traditional bank can do. And so lenders, usually a template, it, it's not, not as much creativity involved and, and really can't even price above maybe a certain amount of leverage or an advance rate. And then kind of going down the spectrum, mezzanine financing. Mezzanine financing is what typically sits under a senior lender. It's a little bit more expensive capital. It's subordinate to a first lien capital provider, typically. There's often an intercreditor, or most often, almost always an intercreditor agreement between as provider and a senior lender. So it's a way to kind of bridge the gap. If you've got equity and you're talking to a bank and the equity won't quite stretch there, oftentimes MES capital or mezzanine financing is a way to get through that bridge from your equity to a senior lender. Maybe maybe something you might see become more a little bit more in vogue, you know, in a yeah. diff, more difficult financing environment. Haven't seen past, obviously, when things are really strong. Yeah. As advance rates may lessen a little bit, given the banks' risk appetites, uh, you do see MES come in and play that. So it's it's going to be more expensive than a senior lender because they're taking more risk. 
I think in terms of bringing MEZ into a deal, obviously you've got another party at the table. You have to make sure that the MEZ and the senior lender, that they're negotiating well and, and don't get to a, an agreement and an intercreditor, which, you know, more parties at the table sometimes introduces more risk, but, but certainly a good option. Obviously, real estate lenders and sale leasebacks, you know, using other pieces of your deal or pieces of collateral to help finance an acquisition or some sort of initiative, and it's a source of capital or need for capital. Non-controlling owners, you know, what we see a lot of times here is friends and family or your brother-in-law. A lot of businesses in the restaurant industry, it's often passing the hat. And so we just see so many deals where you've got a lot of small investors that may be passive in the business, but may show up for a free meal from time to time. And and oftentimes we're asked to come in and maybe buy out a group of smaller investors because people are sick of talking about the business at Christmas dinner or at Thanksgiving meals or on the weekends. And it's gotten to a point where it's awkward, especially if a business may not be you know, always performing well. And people may have different expectations or time horizons. And, and oftentimes, you know, a small business that's grown through lots of small investors that are passive gets to a point where they may want to clean up a capital structure and just streamline it and buy out smaller investors and bring on one larger institutional investor. Same way on the debt side too, right? A lot of these businesses this way are financed by local banks where or SBA loans where you know just the entire financing piece of it from the equity to the debt was just started on a shoestring. Heck, we all started from something, right? And if you make it successful at some point in time, you you get too big for your britches, so to speak. So um, yes, that's common. And I think you oftentimes it gets somewhat complicated because you've got a lot of different financing sources, maybe with different locations, and, and it can be limiting as you really scale your business. And oftentimes it's sometimes easier just to reset the entire capital structure with maybe larger providers that can help take you to the next level. Minority or majority equity providers. These are oftentimes family offices or, or private equity firms, maybe most often. And, and this one in the franchise world is varied in terms of how different brands view and a majority equity providers. You know, a lot of brands that we work with want to see the operator as the franchisee, not a private equity firm, you know, in New York City or, or some other town being the owner and kind of calling the shots at the end of the day. I think some of this comes out of some past experiences where if things don't go perfectly, franchise or franchisee relationship is unique. And, and we have to really understand that and what role the brand plays and what role the franchisee plays. And and that doesn't always sync up with some control kind of majority investors use on how to run businesses or take it in a different direction if something's not working. And so this is something that I think if you're looking for a majority equity provider, it's, I think it's important to understand their experience maybe with the franchise restaurant space or the franchise space in general. There's so many nuances to uh, franchise or franchisee relationships. And some brands may not even uh, if you're selling your business and, and maybe one of your employees or, or there's another buyer and they're backed by a sponsor, you know, we've seen a lot of situations where a lot of people put a lot of money and a lot of work into a deal. And ultimately, the brand does uh, approve the sponsor because they're worried that a sponsor wants to flip a business in three or four years or may not understand the dynamic or or just is not a good fit for their system. So I think really understanding how the brand feels about having this type of institutional investor in the business and then understanding who the partner is and making sure that they understand the rules of, of guarantees and, and all the different nuances of the franchisee space. That's a, that's a clear issue. I mean, I, I will say it's one of the values that our company provides, right, is that, is that every franchisor thinks of these things differently. Will they allow, allow private equity into the business with the defined uh, predetermined buy and sell period of a private equity firm? 
Do they prefer family offices for one reason over the other? How are they going to look at, you know, the ownership, like you said, of a, of a franchisee who might be personally guaranteed with the franchise and only own 10% of it? You know, what's their track record of bringing, of bringing different types of groups into, you know, into their franchise system? Some are really antagonistic towards professional groups. Others are open-minded to it completely, and it's really it's all over the board. It really is. And, and that's, that's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, Rick, and that's a good point. I mean, I think it's almost it's a good reason for people to consider working with someone someone like you. It's it's, it's less so from even that they need help selling a business. You need help getting a transaction over the finish line. Which I think when you're bringing institutional capital in in, in the mix, that's incredibly difficult if you haven't navigated that previously. Thank you for saying it. You know how many calls I get from these people in tall buildings in New York uh, with the same punchline that they read over and over and over again? You know, they use keywords like, oh, let me see if I can pick one out. Like, they'll say headwinds and tailwinds. You know how, you know, when you're sitting around like in the corporate environment and someone uses like a, a term and everyone giggles? You know, it's like the same term that they all use over and over again that leads you to really quickly realize they don't know much about the actual restaurant business or the particulars of franchising. So those things are important, you know, when you're, when you're getting courted by those folks, there's no doubt about it. Sorry to, sorry to belabor that point, but creative financing structures is where you guys obviously have a, a large voice. You have a large voice in all the other pieces too, but tell us your thinking on that. Wait, I'll eat that on the creative structure, sorry, I was actually just reading one of the questions that came through, right? Yeah. You want to hit it? It's a, we can hit it right here if you want to. The question is, what yeah. are mes rates generally for resident financing? Just looking for a range since it depends on size, experience, and existing capital structure. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's a question that varies a lot because of those things. I think if you if you had to tell me to pick a number off, just pick one number, I'd tell you anywhere between 12, 12 to 14 and a half, 15 percent is, is mes range. However, mes is not all mes is not created equal, and so. If it detaches, or sorry, attaches kind of higher up in the capital structure, and what that means is if, if your senior debt isn't as much. So let's say a company could have had could have had four, four and a half turns of senior debt, but they only got two and a half to three turns of senior debt, and the MES goes from two and a half to four and a half times, that's going to price lower. I mean, you're, you're probably high single, low double digits at that range. On the other side, if someone pushes leverage high and you're talking about four, four and a half plus times of senior debt, a turn, turn and a half of MES, you're, you're really bleeding into kind of some preferred equity rates at that point. You're probably getting up into the into the mid to high teens. So long way of answering the question, just because I think MES can look different depending on how it's structured. Yeah, yeah well said. I guess to move on to your next question on the creative financing. So it, it's really a blend of what Richard just walked through of, of all the pieces of the capital structure, as well as the prior page we just w walked through on the needs. And so I think where we see ourselves playing a role in a lot of these transactions, and I'm looking at this slide, I'm kind of the brown and blue boxes at the bottom, you're almost drawing, drawing lines and seeing how many of these you can mix and match together. And that's probably the way that I think about creative financing, that look, you, someone can go out and they can source a capital structure with, with a traditional senior lender, a, a MES lender, a non-control equity provider, and likely get to a very similar solution. Sometimes that paralyzes the company because there's too many people ultimately in the capital structure that way. We have the ability to work through that. In general, I would, I would frame up the 
creative structure is our, our approach here is we're a dedicated restaurant investment firm. We, we focus on kind of the branded restaurant space. We support proven management teams with structured capital solutions to facilitate growth and navigate complex situations. And so I think really what we like to do is not necessarily box ourselves into any one structure on this page. We would say, bring us a problem, bring us a challenge, and, and we'll see if we can structure a piece of capital to solve that problem and, and accomplish kind of the end goal for the owner of the business. And so I think you're doing, you, this was a great introduction to this. I mean, there's a lot of detailed guys and gals who are on this phone call that we probably just don't kind of have the time to get into. But, you know, when you think of things like one of the words on here is unitrons, where basically you're getting all the financing from one for the for, from one person, you know, at one rate or something like that. Or you have convertible preferred that has or you have passive some sort of a passive ownership where you don't have as many voting rights. There's all kinds of different pricing, you know, and, and uh, applications for all these different types of financing types. Like Richard said at the beginning, the plain Jane vanilla way to do it is to buy the truck and put 20% down and borrow the rest from your local bank. You know what I mean? And so a lot of restaurant deals happen that way. But uh, some of these creative approaches that are on this page enable some special circumstances to happen. Or like Richard said, too, things can happen more quickly outside of a normal kind of a, you know, 180 day process that, that typically a lot of these a lot of these transactions take. We can always talk more about that later, but I, I just thought we'd go to the next slide. And, and I saw there was another question on here. Why don't we take it while we're at it? Do you only. Oh, well, it's the same person. Do you only provide mezzanine or equity for franchises or would you look at proprietary brands? That's for you guys particularly. Maybe you can also speak more generally, but to you particularly, I know you look at proprietary brands. So uh, sure. we do both in terms of proprietary brands. If, if it's multiple locations and it's, been, it's got a good operating history, you know, we're probably not the best partner to do a startup brand or something that has one or two locations and wants to go to 50 or 100. But we've got plenty of deals that we've done that are 15 units that have been around for 75 years and, and just need a partner to kind of come in and help them bring it to the, with the technology and all the different things that you would do in supporting a business today that may, a family member or a family may have not have wanted to invest in over the years. So certainly do independent brands as long as it's kind of multiple locations with the kind of a proven track record. I had a question that, that I've gotten a lot. I'll just ask it. It's not, it's not on this screen, but that was earlier. Uh, how do you guys look at it? Because I get this question a lot. How do you guys look at investing with a franchisee? Let's go. It's a specific example. Franchisee has, 75 locations, 50 locations, okay? Let's say he owns, just make up a brand, Arby's. Let's say he owns 50 Arby's. And he wants to form a new group that doesn't affect his ownership in the 50 Arby's, but wants to go build another group based on his reputation and brand experience and history to acquire either more Arby's separately or another brand separately as a roll-up strategy. What do you guys think about that general request? I hear it a lot. Sure, Wade, I'll let you take that. Yeah, sure. I think that request and certainly working with a proven management team is something we always want to consider. It really probably depends. So, Rick, I've seen that play out in a few ways. Sometimes someone does not want to give up equity ownership in the brand, but they're willing in their other business, but they're willing to look at that as a credit enhancement. I think in order to maximize their equity on the acquisition of another business, that would be something that someone should consider. Are they willing to not give up ownership, but expose it from a cross-collateralization perspective? So that's one way to do it. 
The other way to do it could be to sell a piece of minority equity in the other business if they're not if you're not looking to put a check into the new acquisition. Then a few other things that I think we consider bringing to the table. Obviously, there's going to be G&A scale, so an acquisition can probably tap into the existing G&A infrastructure, take on the incremental unit at less than it would cost to build kind of a, a G&A infrastructure from the from the ground up. And obviously, the ability and past experience of the prior management team. What we'd probably look at there is, in your example, if if they were in an Arby's or they were buying an Arby's, but let's say they were in they were in Arby's, we'd probably take a look at their their units and benchmark those to the Arby system and say, is this is this an operator and a management team that's proven that they can run two to four hundred basis points better than the system? And if that's the case, it, it makes a pretty compelling thesis of how they'd be successful at another brand as well. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it is just as simple as the good old supply and demand thing that we talk about all the time in our business, right? If someone's got something that's really in high demand because they operate it well, well, then there's going to be plenty of supply for it, too. Hey, there's one question that came in through here. Maybe we can catch it again. And it's, can you list, based off your past experience, some of the hurdles in getting the deal closed after the start? Well, gosh, how about this? Will. Let's talk about that at the end. There's plenty of that that we can go on forever on that one, but we'll answer that question uh, later. Go ahead, guys, on this on this next slide. And we've got probably another 15 or so minutes to get through the next four or five slides. So, Yeah, Rick, I think largely on this, this slide, thinking through it and, and, and just given the time frame that we've got here, I think we probably covered this and, we'll, and we can wrap up towards it in some of the other slides. And, and that way it'll give Richard a little bit more time to hit on kind of why people want to invest in the restaurant business, and then we can circle back to kind of what makes an individual business investable. Great, great. Do you want to tackle this slide, or do you want to punch it? You want to go past this one too? I think Richard, do you want to take yeah, this I'll, one I'll and take, the next one together? Yeah, no, I, I think maybe we just tell our own story. You know, we started Capital Spring 15 years ago to focus exclusively on one industry, and it's an industry that we love, and we've obviously learned a lot of lessons and met a lot of great people in. But I think stepping back and looking at why we and others have been attracted to, to investing in it, you know, it's pervasive. It's the daily recurring meal demand is, is has been shown to not change that much depending on the economy, depending on the the stock market, depending on the capital markets, you know, people are still eating three meals a day. At some periods, they may go to a grocery store, but looking over the long term, you know, the stats are 70 plus year trends of more meals consumed outside the home almost every year for the last 70 plus years. You know, millennials spending twice as much as baby boomers. We think there are a lot of kind of attributes of it that point to it continuing in that direction. Obviously, the strong cash flows, the, the stable cash flows, especially, uh, particularly in certain segments, kind of the lower the quick service and the fast casual, you know, have been very resilient in good and bad economies looking back historically. You know, not everybody, but for the most part, we're even seeing it in this current kind of pandemic environment, which I guess is a recession and a pandemic at the same time, looking at the brands that have proven very resilient. Uh, I mean, the quick service and some of the fast casual, not exclusively, but, but a lot of the big brands out there, I think people are seeing that they're stable. They're even what would be considered the worst stress case you can imagine, um, a lot of businesses are still putting up positive comps straight through it. Low failure rates, you know, that's, again, I think most people think of restaurants as a riskier place to invest, which is kind of why we picked it. It certainly has less people, I think, focused on it because of that. But looking at the franchised space and, and the big franchise brands, I, I think it's hard to argue that it is not less risky than starting your own from scratch. Massive industry, lots of consolidation opportunities, super fragmented, you know, all the things that are kind of the buzzwords that you probably see in and the first page summaries of any private equity or, or debt 
opportunity out there uh, the restaurant industry has it. It's funny. I got off the phone call today with a guy who out west who's, you know, we were chatting about the pizza business. He doesn't own pizza, but he's at, he, he wanted to know about the brand and, you know, whether it's something to, to consider for acquisitions. The first thing I said to him was, now, what the heck are you thinking wanting to get into the pizza business? So I think the same time, I think I, I think I was joking, of course, but I, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, what the heck are you thinking wanting to get into investing in the franchise business? Yeah. You must be crazy. You know, you must be off your rocket. Well, look, uh, it, all brands go through cycles and there's almost no brand out there, no matter how big. You can't point to a period of time where they had headwinds, obviously has had headwinds. Now going through the pandemic, it's actually uh, looking a lot better. But I think that's the other thing to, to think about is you're looking for picking a capital partner, whether it be a bank or a private equity fund. Understanding the industry is important because you do have those cycles. You do have those quarters that for whatever reason, it may be a foodborne illness. It may be your competitor is, is promoting with a movie that, that drives some competition or they you know, introduced a new kind of taco shell that, that is very popular. You know, this is um, it's not always a straight line. And so I think finding partners that have been through it, the ups and the downs of the industry typically may be a little safer bet than someone who um, may be approaching it with you know, uh, excited about it and thinking it's a great opportunity, but may panic if, if you get a slow quarter or a few quarters because the brand has had. Sorry. I would love to hear if we have time later on, what's your best investment and your worst investment were? If, if anyway, We've learned a lot of lessons. Learned a lot yeah, of lessons. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can I can talk about that kind of stuff too. It's always interesting to hear how people evolve with their yeah. with investment thesis. But yeah, go go ahead here. I mean, I think we we maybe talked about this a little bit already, right? The, the general gist of this is just that the you know the restaurant business is you know has all the positive kind of attributes that really drive your thinking. You know, I love the consolidation piece, the gentrification of the franchise base. I love the standable business. It's one that everyone wants to talk about. It's a business that's really easy to talk about, but it's really hard to do well and do well every day. Mm -hmm. Cash-rich business. Brands have low failure rates. Great people in this industry. So I'm a big believer that this is like almost more than the national pastime of like playing baseball. Like this is where the legacy of American, American innovation and entrepreneurship really started in many ways is in the franchise business in the 1950s and 60s. So it's a great place to great place to be, man. I, I just I've staked my career on it. How about how about talking a little bit about about your outlook for the, some of the folks that are on call here? Yeah, sure. Happy to talk through this and, and so I give kind of some real time feedback of what we're seeing. Obviously, there's been a lot of ups and downs and, and the markets have changed very quickly here. So uh, what, what we're saying now may, may be different tomorrow, maybe different the next day. But a large range here from kind of what I would call the have, have nots on the access to capital side here. I think QSRs, uh, what we're seeing largely unaffected by their access to capital going forward. And that's driven by kind of most of the underlying brands we're seeing that performance is in line from a same store sales basis to, to last year to slightly up. And most people are operating several hundred basis points higher margin than they were prior year because they're doing it with the drive-through only, with closed dining room, at times limited operating hours, doing the same volume, just results in a slightly more efficient um, operating model. And that's resulted in year-over-year increased earnings. And so I think largely we're seeing that market still exists. I know I saw a handful of, of senior lenders on, on the invite list here that have doubted and they could speak to this and certainly in greater detail. But I think what we're seeing at least for the access to capital on that side, it's still there. Maybe the terms have tightened a little bit where we're in adjusted leverage, maybe at five, 
five and a half to six times a couple months ago that that's now stepped down to maybe five, let's call it five to five and a half times, depending on the brand. So maybe a quarter turn to half turn step down, tightening on a couple of the covenants, occasionally insertion of a minimum liquidity covenant, and then LIBOR floors of around 100 basis points or so is what we're, what we're seeing. But access to capital is still there. I think for fast casual, we're seeing a bit of a mixed bag there. You know, you've got brands that are down less than 10%. That probably mirrors what I just outlined for QSR as far as access to liquidity and what the financing outlook is like for those businesses. And then you've got casual dining businesses that some of them, unfortunately, have taken much larger hits, and it's going to take some time for them to come back So customers are out and about and fully going to dine in. I think we've seen some brands that have done a very good job of replacing dine-in sales with off-premise, but it still doesn't get you back to back to shore fully. And so I think largely, and unless it's a unique situation, we're seeing kind of access to, be, to capital being limited for those brands. How do you solve for that? Let's just, you know, I, I don't want to belabor the point or take a lot of time on it, but, you know, we I spend so much time talking about QSR, where, like you said, the access to capital is there and is actually pretty strong and the rates are incredible and terms are great still. I mean, so I'm a cash dining franchisee and I've got 50 locations in North Carolina, whatever, and I'm struggling. Sales are still down 35%. I need capital. I mean, how, how do I, what do I think about? How do I think about that? Yeah, sure. I think that's probably going to be some form of alternative capital. I think that's a difficult, pure senior refi in the, in the casual space, in the casual space right now. And, and I guess the way that we would that we would probably approach it and look at it for some of these brands is, is understanding kind of the pre-pandemic performance and then looking at a burn rate for the businesses, just understanding they are going to burn some capital, burn some liquidity, and what's a reasonable outlook when same-store sales necessarily come back to full capacity and then how much kind of liquidity is burned over that period. And, and that's kind of the gap that you're having to solve for. I do think it's to the extent that operators have access to liquidity elsewhere. I know several of the kind of programs have helped supplement liquidity for businesses. I do think if you're if you're tapping liquidity that, that route in casual, you're likely they're going to be more expensive capital or have some form of equity component to it right now in, in today's market. So if you're if you're in bad shape and your sales haven't rebounded and you're looking for capital, the punchline is likely that you're going to have to give up some, not a lot of the equity in your business to keep it keep it going, right? That's basically basically. It is, but you know that's, that's a decision. Yeah, and I think some people have that decision, but but also if, if I look at where opportunities may be across the spectrum, there's largely going to be more closures in casual than there are. I mean, QSRs have performed very well. Very limited closures, less closures on the fast casual side. And so on the other side, you, you probably see a little bit more of a disproportionate benefit to casual due to some of the closures elsewhere. So if there's silver lining to it, it's that. I know it's a it's kind of a tough spot to see the silver lining and then be patient and wait that long, but there probably is some. What's your sense, too, for these types of operators about how, you know, forbearance is happening with the senior lenders and things? Do you guys have a window into that for a lot of, a lot of our clients and friends obviously got you know, interest only or got deferrals of their payments for a certain amount of time. I mean, how, how's that looking, you know, right now for a lot of, a lot of your clients and friends in the industry? Yeah, I think most, most of what we're seeing is largely shorter term forbearance agreements and putting it out three to six months and people understanding that they want to come back to the table and have a discussion when things kind of normalize a little bit. We've seen a handful of situations that have a longer term forbearance agreement given. 
but that's more of the exception than the norm. Uh, I think largely what we're seeing is people come back to the table. But I think right now I'm generally also seeing lenders remain pretty constructive out there. I think people understand the nature of this, that there was a hit, and I think kind of seeing that people that have kind of recovered from it are able are able to structure some flexibility and, and where the ongoing discussions are people that are still down a little bit or liquidity is tighter right now. Sorry, I've asked so many questions. Uh, I'm probably messing up your presentation. We've got two more uh, slides uh, in maybe five minutes to get there. Just like Smokey and the Bandit. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. You remember that movie, man? Yeah. That was great. I mean, I don't know if it's politically correct or not, but it is a great movie back in the day. <laughs> Wait, you yeah. on some of these? I agree. Yeah, you know, I think these are just with our time frame. I think the more meaningful slides may be to get to the explanation of how an investment decision is made and how to prepare a business. That's great stuff. Yeah, and, and I think one of the questions first was how an investment decision is made here, kind of at the institutional level. And, and I think largely what speak to what we focus on, and, and then every institution is going to be a little bit different, but really focus on kind of the first and foremost. The, the management team, the background, who's going to be staying around. Understand sometimes there's going to be a seller that's stepping away, but has he built, has that person built a strong team that's going to go forward? And this is kind of what I would put in the general bucket of how to attract institutional capital. Franchisee to franchisee deals will be, be different because management teams are there. And then look, category and performance. I think the stability of, of the category is key. Longer term performance, what are the tailwinds look in the business? Obviously, easier to invest in something with proven trends and a track record of success. And then a few other things, the operating leverage of the business. And when I say the operating leverage, I mean kind of the, uh, the easier way to describe that is maybe the margin profile of the business. So, for example, a business with a 15% corporate EBITDA margin is inherently going to be more attractive and trade at a higher multiple than a business with a 5% EBITDA margin. And, and the rationale there is if you look to an EBITDA to free cash flow conversion, a smaller percentage of your EBITDA is going to maintenance and remodel CapEx on the 15% business inherently than the 5% business. So I think if you see multiples across the system, you'll, that, that's one thing that largely drives it, that all EBITDA is not created equal, and so that all multiples won't, won't be created equal as a result of that. And then I think the next two items is just the acquisition and development track record. And I think this is very important for any institutional investor coming in because they're going to want to look at a way to drive value going forward. And so how do you create a thesis is you're either going to develop units, you're going to acquire units. And if you can kind of pencil it out with a team that's got a successful track record of, of high ROIs on new development or integrating new acquisitions successfully, and, and even better than that, integrating acquisitions successfully and driving top line and finding margin improvement. If you find those, I think those are kind of what checks the box to be an investable business and, and, and what, what attracts institutional capital. What about the opposite way? What, uh, give us an, ex an example, maybe not of a person or a business, but in your past, both of you guys, maybe when you saw someone unprepared, you know, I mean, sometimes the type and the anti-type make, you know, give a better example. Like someone comes walking in the door and, you know, and they're disheveled and they're grouchy and you know, whatever. <laughs> what, what makes them unattractive to you? you know, I mean, you know, what makes yeah. them unattractive to you? You know, we've, we've passed on opportunities previously of someone comes in the door and maybe they're not even 
necessarily unprepared from the performance of their business today, but they're unprepared for a sale. And so someone's come in the door before, and they've had a phenomenal business. Trends have been good. They operate 300 basis points better than the system average does, but there's no succession plan and the plans to sell the business. There's no one that can step up. They've done a good job acquiring businesses. They've done a good job developing units, but all of that knowledge is leaving. And I think that's something that there's a disconnect. It's a very strong underlying business, but the pieces for that business to continue the success going forward are leaving. And so that's caused us to walk away from transactions before of a good underlying business without a successful plan going forward. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's helpful. little tidbit there. You know, other thing I keep hearing you say is you look for operators and to invest, you know, for operators who are running their margins and you're using basis points, but for, for anybody out there who doesn't know basis points, like if you're running margins that are 3% better than your, than the average, you know, franchisee in your category in your brand, that seems to be a very key component. You know, these, these gentlemen here want to invest in operators who run good P&Ls, right? Because they're going to make the assumption that when they invest with you, that you're going to be growing in their way that their investment's going to grow and everyone's business is going to become more attractive is, is if you're able to, to operate the PNL very strongly. So, you know, reach out to us if you're on this phone or to Capital Spring folks and get a, get a perspective of how you do, how you're running against the, uh, your, your uh, brain franchisees. I mean, you could call me, let's say you're a I don't know, Popeye's franchisee or whoever you might be and say, hey, how do I run my margins compared to the average Popeye's franchisee? We have a perspective on that. And I know Richard and Wade do too. You know, that's a critical component to whether someone is going to want to get into a marriage with you and help you grow your business beyond what you've been able to do yourself. So you're, you know, like anything else, your, your operation and your management teams are a huge, a huge component of the success here. Anything you guys want to say in closing? Here's obviously uh, the contact information. We'll send this out. So if anyone doesn't have time to write it down, you'll get it otherwise. So if Richard, you start getting a bunch of you know spam emails, you'll know it came from Unbridled. <laughs> but, uh, no, I would uh, say that there's a couple of questions that maybe if the people that posted the questions you want to just email us directly, we'll just happy to jump on the phone and, and walk through those. Look, I, th- I think some of the key components are, regardless of what type of capital you need, is finding a partner that understands your business and understands it's not always going to be a perfect straight line and that's going to take the bumps with you and be constructive in getting through the, the harder times or the headwinds, as people maybe in conference rooms would say in New York City. I think that's really important. And for us, we decided to pick one industry and just really focus on it. We look at three or 400 deals a year. We've got 30 people and all we do is look at restaurant deals. So when we're having conversations with people, it may, we kind of get to the the essence of it pretty quickly because we've seen a lot and hopefully we can be constructive and helpful and not give quick no's on things that we just don't, aren't a good fit for and in situations that, that we think are good fits, you know, I think can move as quickly or faster than most people because we already understand all the intermediary steps that a lot of people may ask questions about if, if they're looking at 10 different industries. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt that's right. There's no doubt that's right. And we can do those. Thank you so much. And I hate to hate to end with questions after that nice kind of final hurrah. But since we have a couple of minutes left, let's answer these questions for these gentlemen and ladies. Huh? Let's see. I see a lot of deal flow in multi-unit casual dining space that have solid pre-COVID operating histories. We have been thrashed by the pandemic and the owners are desperate since traditional bank financing has dried up. If you had to structure a deal to recapitalize, would it be a combination of debt and upside? Okay. Specific comment there. We kind of talked about it a little yeah. bit. Maybe this yeah. question came in before we, we touched yeah. it. Yeah. 
I think that's right. I think it would be a combination. I think there would be an upside component in there. And I think the way that we would look at it is kind of when we talked about it previously of looking at the pre-COVID performance, factoring in what's the burn rate look like until things normalize to establish the ultimate capital need and kind of liquidity horizon for the business. What are some of the snags of a deal getting closed once you get invested, once you get in the trenches with the potential? I mean, that that is like yeah. an open-ended <laughs> question that I could speak for weeks about. But, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, you've got leases that don't that go crazy. You've got franchisors that go crazy. <laughs> you've got, uh, you know, financials that aren't what you thought they were. You've got management teams that don't stick around. You've got, I mean, there's all kinds of things. But yeah. uh, any, any comments there? I think financing sources, you know, surety of close can be one of the more important things. You may have the cheapest price, but if, if they're going to not get to your finish line, the time frame you need it to, that may jeopardize the whole deal. So I think surety of close is, is key in, in understanding up front, you know, how comfortable are you that the counterparties you're talking to on the financing side can get there and on your timeline. I think that's where we see hurdles all the time when there are multiple parties at the table and somebody's on a different timeline and holds the entire process up. I think uh, brands, obviously, making sure there's a lot of brand approvals that are needed anytime a franchisee deal is done, making sure you understand those up front and are tracking the timelines that are needed to get those approvals. Obviously, lease transfers, we see that oftentimes holding up deals where you have a variety of landlords, and to get those lease transfers, that may take a different period of time for each type of landlord. So making sure you start those processes early in your own process to make sure that they're going to be done and, and transferred before you're ready to close. That can always hang things up. Those yeah, are some I, that you see. I always tell people in our line of business that, you know, if you have a business that we're selling for you and your business is tracking negative, comping negative, you know, I've very rarely seen businesses close at the same price you start at if the business is comping negative in a pretty dramatic direction during due diligence. Sure. You know, if your margin, you mean some sellers that are, are people who are doing any kind of a transaction, take their eye off the ball and stop operating well during the middle of a transaction because it gets overwhelming. And that's a bad thing to do. You have to operate your business well. You have to continue to produce year over year sales increases or flat sales. And you need to be profitable in what you do. And I also say the other thing that I see where deals get hung up is is when clients have a miss appropriation and misunderstanding of the risk associated with the transaction, whatever that would be. A lot of that relates to when, when our experience is selling a company, you'll see franchisees not understand that there are reps and warranties. And, and there's all, you know, there's all kinds of language that, that affects the decisions they make to either sell or finance their business or to find equity partners. And so an understanding of that risk is something that we'll do on the front end to make sure that the people or going through a process that they that they understand because once you get into those due diligence periods and people have not understand understood the risk appropriately, a lot of deals can fall apart in that phase if you're not careful. So I see we had another question. Did we have one more question? So let's see if we can get it again. Do you facilitate international acquisitions and sell-offs? So, I mean, at Unbridled, yes, we've worked internationally in quite a few markets. Uh, you know, it's not something we do for smaller transactions, but sure, we've uh, done done work in Canada. We're bringing a, a big group from the South Pacific area into the United States on an acquisition right now, a big acquisition, actually, you know, almost nine figures and several other uh, deals in the Caribbean area. So, yes, and I know, Richard, you guys do as well, don't you? I mean, at one point, I know you were looking at the UK for franchise brands, right? We do. So, we've, we've done work in Canada, Mexico, 
Puerto Rico and looked at stuff in the Caribbean. Certainly, we, we look at stuff in, in Europe, you know, Eastern Europe, and, and certainly have considered deals. We haven't done a, a specific deal in Europe yet, but we've got flexibility in the mandate to look at some opportunities there. So we would typically, most of what we've looked at have been U.S. brands that have good franchisees over there to look into consolidate or, or need a capital partner. And so we, we certainly are, are able to do that. It's not our Certainly our expertise uh, being sitting in the U.S., most of what we do is in the U.S., but, but we certainly have and, and we'll continue to look at opportunities overseas. Those international deals are really difficult to do because there's usually not any bank financing there, right? I mean, it's yeah. I mean, a lot of local jurisdictions and lending laws that you really it takes a lot of a lot of extra work to make sure you got your arms around the, the risk and the return potential. And, that, and that's for you and it is for us, too. It's a it's a big piece of it. Every country has a different law has different uh, complexities. So, the, so just the deal costs of Richard and Wade's time and the professionals used to make the decision is, is higher. So the opportunity probably has to be larger, I would say, for you guys, right? Same with us. I think so. We, we've looked at things where we've actually looked at financing U.S. operations and made a loan to a U.S. operation. They've used the proceeds to go build something internationally. So our, our collateral is in the U.S., but the use of proceeds may not necessarily be U.S.-based. So we can get creative in those respects as well. Huh. Huh. Thank you, guys, man. Thank, Thank you. you. What Appreciate your time. Webinar. Really enjoyed it. And yeah. You can see it face-to-face sometime soon. Yeah, man. And for everyone who's watching, let's go get them. I think the message is, is a positive one, despite what you're seeing on TV. I'm really proud of our industry as a whole and everyone who's attached to it that we're hanging in there and I just uh, hope and pray that everyone listening, that you guys are safe and that your business really is improving. You know, um, there's, a bright, there's a bright, there's a sunnier day that's coming for sure. So thank you all so much. Let us know if we can be helpful, regardless of whether it's a fit for us. We're happy to be helpful, answer questions or connect dots to the extent we can. We're here. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Richard and Wade. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Great day. Y'all too. Hey, Trick. Bye. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes podcasts, videos, white papers, webinars, and a list of our M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. Thank you.